What is up, guys? This is Pinzo back with another episode of the Nerd Hub podcast. Of course, I am joined by my co-host, Exelon. It's great to be here. Love always being here chatting with you and recording some it always, some, some it always feels hubs, good to get some to get some podcast time in, you know. Oh, absolutely! It's it, it's great, and we've got a we've got a great episode dialed or, or yeah, a great episode dialed up for everybody. So I think I'm so. Excited. I think we've got some good stuff here to go over. Actually, do you want to take the intro into our first topic? Yeah, I'll, I'll take it. So normally we would talk about uh, movies first, right? And just because both of us are kind of zoomers, we tend to talk about, you know, newer stuff just because that's sort of what like pertains. It's like, kind of our area of expertise. Uh, today, we wanted to take a chance to go back in time a little bit and talk about some more kind of classic movies, older movies, and kind of like what makes a movie from, you know, the 70s, 80s, what makes that kind of movie hold up today? Like, why are we still watching movies from the 70s? You know, that that's kind of what what I want to kick us off with. What do you think, Exelon? So classic movies, like we kind of get to filter a little bit of what we like and what we don't like in in movies that quote unquote hold up or within like classic movies. But one of the things that I think is really consistent amongst classic movies that I really like, specifically in like the action adventure genre, action adventure genre, is the fact that back in the seventies and eighties, like we didn't, you didn't have CGI, so you had to do all your stunts like for real. You couldn't really edit anything and make it look super dynamic. Um, you actually just, had to do. Yeah. And to me, like. That's incredibly impressive, especially with the movies that hold up, like uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and Jaws. Yeah. Um, there's a particular stunt in Raiders of the Lost Ark where uh-huh. Indiana Jones, um, or his character, goes underneath a moving car, and he grabs bottom parts of the car to get from the the front of this, like, this buggy like this military buggy to the back. Well, it's moving. He grabs the bottom parts of it, and he's sliding down well and then pulls himself up and gets into the back of the truck. Well, yeah, that he was real. Well, but so yeah, cuz he gets to the bottom and then he hooks his whip on and he gets drugged behind it while grabbing his whip for like a solid like 10 seconds and then ends up climbing back into it. Yeah. Yeah, but like that was a real stunt that happened. It's a crazy and stunt. And it's so cool that that actually happened. I think there's also other like camera work things that um <clears throat> that have kind of been refined in the newer age is like people kind of learn but i mean yeah yeah it gets really... it should it re- theoretically <clears throat> stuff like camera work should only get better with time right yeah but if you take something like goodwill hunting has surprisingly amazing camera work for how to like convey emotion throughout a scene like a bar scene the way the camera shifts and pivots between people of like of how people are feeling like whether somebody is like in control of themselves or not of like how much a camera pivots between or moves in when you have like a really intimate scene with Mm -hmm. will hunting and robin williams character like that kind of like close-up camera work where it doesn't really cut a whole lot I think some of that's it's not necessarily lost to time, and there are definitely directors that 
let that stuff I, I was going to say that I think that but, a lot of that kind of camera work is director-driven, to be honest. Yeah, but I think some of the old, older directors did that really well, and that's what kind of makes those movies hold up more than, like, something that we've forgotten about, like a, a movie that sucked, or is it doesn't hold up to the 2023 lens. Yeah, and so you brought up, uh, like, lack of CGI, right? And one thing that I wanted to ask you, which is something that I think is very important that old movies did, that newer movies tend to have a lot less of, is shooting on location. Like, going... we I know we talk about Lord of the Rings a lot, all right? But it's a really good movie. Like, it, it's a good, <laughs> it's a it's a good set of movies, of right? <laughs> they went to New Zealand, filmed everything in New Zealand, and so when you're looking at those movies and you're like, dang, like... Those mountains look real. The way that those characters are moving over them, like, looks really real. Like, it's it's just real. They just filmed those guys walking across, like, rocks and mountains and stuff like that, right? That's why it looks real. Whereas in a movie made today, I would... I, I would be led to believe that something like that would be would be shot in CGI, right? Like those wide shots that you get in New Zealand where they're drone shots, they're up in the air, watching people scramble over rocks, walk out, walk through a path, that kind of stuff, right? Can you imagine that those would be like put in CGI today? Absolutely not. Like, like they, they would 100% be put into CGI. Yeah, like yeah. If you ever want to know like how much CGI is put into a Marvel movie, look up like still images of the set of like Avengers Endgame. Look at any where, behind the scenes picture, yeah. Yeah, any behind the scenes picture you they're on just a massive green screen and that's it. And it's like they're in costume or in a suit and then it is so much green. And 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 that's it. And like older movies couldn't get away with that you knew when you were on a green screen like there's a certain moment in star wars i think that's really really funny in the fourth movie um or in episode four a new hope where wait no it's sorry it's episode six um when there's a where han solo and um lando calrissian are when han hands lando the uh basically the keys to the millennium falcon that scene yep. is like I know exactly what you're talking about for having a green screen on it. Like the rest of the set is real and you're having to find camera angles and like di- kind of like more dynamic movement and like how you're going to block an actor moving in when you can only put a camera here, here, here. Um, and then there's this, just this one, this one scene where they didn't want to build a set and there's a green screen and this movie was made in like the seventies or eighties. And yeah, it's obvious. You can tell you can tell so much even in the remastered version you well, can it just tell, doesn't like, look quite, quite right you know yeah. like especially those older green screens like i mean we, we brought up marvel and to marvel's credit they're pretty good at making things that are cg look good right like they are pretty good at it but there's just something different with the like about the way that actors interact with a real set that you just can't replicate with pure green screen right like there's just some there like there's just something missing there that you just don't quite get without a real set. Like one thing that you'll see with action and and action and adventure movies a lot of the time, especially with heavily CGI movies, is like if somebody ever has a firearm and shoots the firearm, 
there's no recoil. Their shoulder doesn't move the right way. There's yeah. no, like, blast of wind that goes, like, up next to their hair. Like, Bucky Barnes' hair, in, he's got a giant, like, M16 with a massive clip. Dude's unloading on aliens, and his hair is perfect. He doesn't yeah. move. I mean, there's like, and there's something to be said about, like, you know painting a picture right which a lot of which is what a lot of marvel is is just painting it's just painting a nice picture they want they want everyone to look good everyone like after a fight everyone's makeup's perfect right like we we talked about some of that stuff it's just i don't know like watching people interact on a set that's green screen or watching people interact with green screen characters is just it there's something about it that just doesn't feel quite right like even if even if you can't quite put your finger on it you're like ah that like that interaction was a little bit weird. I like I can't quite I can't quite tell exactly what was wrong, but it seemed a little bit unnatural, and I'm I, I can't put my finger on it. You know? Yeah, and there like there's a funny thing with like eye lines in heavily CGI movies yep. that like a character will be off screen or the camera's not on them at the time but they're being CGI'd in later and every actor has a different perception of how they're tall not all a looking at the same is. spot. Yeah. Yeah. They're not all looking at exactly the same spot. So there's like, here's a rough eye line. And so somebody's looking slightly above, slightly below, or like not at, no, not everybody's looking at the exact right spot. Um, Brie Larson, uh, the person who plays, uh, uh, Captain Marvel actually has complained about this before, like on set multiple times. She's like, I need an eye line. I need a consistent eye line. I need to know where the hell I'm looking or like what I'm looking at. And she's literally like suspended midair, covered in a green jumpsuit. Yeah, right. I know what I'm looking at. Like, I, I, I get, like, give me some help. I'm trying to deliver a line. Like, I'm trying, I'm trying to get this movie done and over with. And y'all yeah. aren't helping me with anything. So. When I think you can see, like, I I, th- I know you brought up Star Wars Episode Six, but, like, I think in the Star Wars prequels, we get a really good look at what the difference is when you have uh, convincing paintings and miniatures and actual sets, right, as you see in movies like A New Hope and uh, Empire Strikes Back, right? And then you get to Episode One, Two, Three. And they are using a lot of green screen instead of paintings or minis, right? And they're using a lot of CG, and this was early 2000s CG, so it's not very good. And it's just very obvious. Like, to those movies, especially when compared to, to the original trilogy, uh, they just look a little lazy a lot of the time, right? Especially on wide shots. Uh, they're, if they're ever trying to show the scale of something, like, right, when they're showing the, the palace, uh, Queen Amidala's palace, Right. It's just like like it just looks fake. And and in the old movie, right, in if they were to have done that wide shot in episode five, that would have been a fully painted mini and or a very, very well done painting. Right. I don't know if you've seen those where uh, like in episode four, the first time we see Darth Vader. Right. And all the clones are lined up or all mm-hmm. the stormtroopers are lined up. Right. Uh, it's it's a painting. They zoom into a painting. And then transition to a real camera. And it looks really, really good. You would never know. Yeah. But it's stuff like that that just feels a little bit missing. Like, And I think the original or the, the sequel trilogy for Star Wars is a really good place to see kind of like because you, you literally have a 
a comparison, which is the older Star Wars movies, and you can see right. how much more you know was put into those old ones. And then they tried to do something in this in this prequels, and it just didn't quite work out for them. I don't think. Yeah, I think a, a, another great example is um, Lord of the Rings. I think it was it's Arendelle um, that is a, originally a mini that they zoom through like the camera and you'd never know it wasn't CGI. Like you'd never know. And then they transitioned to like, yeah, where, where the, uh, um, where the group is the, it's before the fellowship. It's before the fellowship is technically formed. Yeah. Yeah. It's in Rivendell. Yeah. Yeah. I called it Arendelle, didn't I? You did call it Arendelle. I was, I was going to correct you, but I was going to let you finish. Okay, thank you. I appreciate you. I appreciate that. Oh, yeah. In Rivendell. Uh, Ar- Arendelle's frozen. Rivendell's okay. Yeah, R- Rivendell. Anyways, Anyways but yeah. Ta- okay, but we've talked a lot of shit on these movies on like or on like because they're kind of easy to pick on. The problem is it, like there's just kind of talk about it. But like, what are some new like good things about movies and that like about that are that you've enjoyed? Well, so like I said, I, I do think that even though Marvel, I strongly believe, overuses green screens, they're really good at it. Like, right, they're, they're very good at getting it convincing. And I think there are certain characters that are brought to life by CGI that, do a, that actually do do a very good job, right? Like, specifically, I'm thinking of Groot and Rocket from the Guardians of the Galaxy. Those are two okay. completely CG characters that are they obviously have green screen or uh people like in ocap suits in the scene right so you you uh get to deal a little bit better with stuff like eyeline right because you do have a person in the scene but at the end of the day right those are completely cg characters but they they feel like they are in, like they feel like they're in the same room as as the other as the other actors which is something that uh can be missed a little bit right like again prequels like jar jar a lot of the time kind of feels like he's in a different place than a lot of the other than a lot of the other actors in a scene um so i do think that there are some things that you do gain from from green screen even if it's overused other than that i think that just kind of like the scope of movies that are able to be made now is so broad that it i think it's just expanded horizons like how good cgi has gotten has just expanded horizons on on what kind of movie you can make whereas before you were obviously physically limited by what kind of sets you could create what locations you could shoot on that kind of thing you know right like something like into the spider-verse really i think kind of utilized the available technology of like what if we changed art styles every 10 minutes and like really really pushed like design and how we could use like animation techniques i think is was really really cool um i also think that just animation engines in general i don't know if you ever talked if you've ever looked into how the incredibles uh changed how yeah. animation works yep i know exactly or, what you're talking about but one of the really cool things that the incredibles did is that um they found out that using spheres as people's limbs when animating them made it look much more real on like how somebody's muscles would contract or move 
And yeah. that really pushed, like, animators to do bigger, more realistic things and make it's it why feel... we, It's why we got people in animated cartoons rather than just, like, A Bug's Life and Toy Story, right? Right, exactly, exactly. And it's just, like, things like that that these techniques in animation are really, really well done. Where before you were just in the 70s, you were really just restricted to, like literally drawing like physically in 17 different ways to shoot a scene <clears throat> yeah i think i think animation uh, again i i hesitate to say like the category of animation is animation uh, i guess maybe it, i could call it a category it's not a genre but i could call it a category um i i think it's definitely benefited the most from mm both technological and uh people just getting better at it right like both of those things have combined to where we actually have really good animated movies now i mean even if you look at stuff like uh disney renaissance right little mermaid uh hercules mulan like those are those are very good movies but they artistically they obviously stand out but you i guess the question i guess this this is a fair question. I guess I hadn't thought about this, right? Is like, do you do you think they look better? Like, do you think that Frozen looks better than Mulan? I mean, it's it's really or kind it, of at least to me comparing apples to oranges. You think it's uncomparable? That was going to be my next question. <clears throat> I, yeah, I just think it's they're so different moving from a 2D to 3D medium in animation. It's like, like comparing a Studio Ghibli film, yeah exactly completely artistically different yeah it's just like it's different art styles where i don't feel like you can really compare the animation style but like if there was a new or movie that came out that was in that 2d medium i think that would be like you could compare them a lot easier and you could probably make the argument that like that the 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 older movies were better for x y and z reasons yeah i would i would be really curious to obviously i don't know i'm not going to look it up right now but i mean when was the last time that like a fully 2d hand-drawn movie was like created you have I'm a, looking it up yeah you're gonna look it last, up the last um the last hand-drawn movie or 2D animation um, was The Princess and the Frog in 2009. So it has been 14 years since okay. the last Interesting. movie like that. Well, that, is... that must have been... <clears throat> I'm trying to think, because that's Disney, but what came out... I mean, there, there are Disney movies between that that were using CG, right? Between the Renaissance and Princess and the Frog. Yeah, that was the last one, I guess, that used hand-drawn techniques, because the first movie to ever be fully animated, like, not hand-drawn at all, was Toy Story. Yeah, yeah, and I knew that. And one, I don't know if it was the first, but one of the first movies to blend 3D with hand-drawn was, uh, I just lost the name of it, uh, Treasure, I- Treasure Planet. Oh, was one of if not the first movies to blend hand-drawn animation with 3d atlantis did it too um 
Atlantis is primarily hand-drawn. Only, like, very wide shots are using CG. Like, if you... Uh, even if you haven't seen Atlantis recently, just picture in your mind the moment in Atlantis where they drop all of the, the giant ships into the water. Yeah. It's CG, exactly and you, and you can tell... It looks decent, I'll give them that, but you can tell. And that's, like, that and the Leviathan that they fight are, like, the very few CG moments in that movie. The rest of it, the rest of it is hand-drawn. But, like, the the Disney Renaissance films are all hand-drawn. Yeah. Uh, So the last hand-drawn movie or movie that used hand-drawn techniques was 2011 Winnie the Pooh is the oldest so these are using you say these are using hand-drawn techniques can you find the last movie that was entirely hand-drawn yeah Uh, is that that would be my question is i because i actually don't know i'm trying to think off the top of my head like i don't think little mermaid or mulan had cg elements to them but i don't know about like the end of the renaissance like i don't know if hercules did or uh maybe well the thing that's the thing that's screwing me up now is there's a movie called loving vincent that was made in 2017 that used a ton of like hand-drawn scenes because it's about vincent van gogh um let's see And drawn animated Disney films in order. I just I just went for Disney because it makes it a lot easier. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. So this is saying that from what I am finding, the most recent hand drawn movie is Brother Bear from two thousand and three. Wow. Uh, That's crazy. Is that well? Are these in? Oh, these are not in order. By release date, I lied. This has the Princess and the Frog on it. I wonder. I I don't know the last time I've seen Princess and the Frog. Is it fully hand drawn? You have any idea? I'm running through the movie in my head. I'm thinking through it in my head. I think it. I think it definitely could be. Yeah. I definitely think it could be. Yeah, this says the last, uh, yeah, the last 2D animation, uh, also known as hand-drawn animation, is created by drawing each frame, uh, each frame by hand. The last hand-drawn Disney film was depicted in The Princess and the Frog, which was released in 2009. That's crazy. Interesting. Okay. So I guess that's our answer. I'm just looking at some of these other ones, like, I mean, some of these make sense. Some of these are surprising, like Beauty and the Beast. I kind of thought that used wait. Oh yeah, no, because this is why I actually kind of love this movie is that the ballroom dancing scene. Where is that they, is that fully hand drawn? That's that is hand drawn. Right, really? That's how ridiculous. Yes, that is a fully hand drawn scene because that's how ridiculous that is. Because that shot, like that that whole scene, but that shot, that sweeping shot down from the ceiling of the ballroom is like one yeah. of the better shots in an animated movie like ever really oh yeah and it's hand drawn i i i was thinking because that's that's just the one that caught my eye because that scene is obviously very very renowned it was in my head of i was like that that must be that must be like using some cg elements that's crazy that no, that's hand drawn yeah i know right that's, that's actually that insane crazy. yeah 
So it looks like... It came out in 1997. Yeah. No, I mean, it looks like... So, okay, so... I guess that, yeah, Princess and the Frog would have been the last one. At least from, Di- again, from Disney that, that's fully yeah, hand-drawn. It's, it's going to be a little hard to find. Like, there's probably, like, that one art major that made a movie that got mentioned in the Yeah, Oscars again, we're, I'm not going to go digging, that, digging for yeah, 2023 hand-drawn yeah. films. Yeah, we're gonna get um, actually they're like oh yeah right we're we're talking we're talking blockbusters here we're talking i I, and i just i just went and i just searched disney just to narrow it down to make it easier to find a list that's interesting there are some good movies on here emperor's new groove like i guess most of these i i like i understand are fully hand-drawn though like princess and the frog just surprised me because of how late it came out but Interesting. I mean, still, like, it's 2009. Like, that's a, still a pretty, like, that movie was made 14 years ago. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I don't know. Now, now I just feel old. That's a really long time ago. <laughs> a really long time ago. Yeah. No, well, okay, I mean, there are definitely, kinda... there's definitely some things that, uh, I don't know. I think there are some things that you lose going from that 2D to that 3D animation, right? Even now, like in 2023, where we've gotten so good at, you know, the full 3D CG, uh, mm-hmm. I think there are still some kind of things that you lose from from those old 2D movies. Like, it just, I don't know, just the feeling of the movie. Again, like you said, it, it's, it's, it's almost just a completely different art style, right? Are they even comparable is the question. Yeah, I mean, I really, I don't think so. It's, it's just, it's just different. Like it is just. It is. I mean, it's a whole it new medium. Just, it's, it's like comparing a, uh, a classic painter to someone who does pencil drawings, right? Like it's a completely different medium. Yeah, exactly. But like, we've talked a lot about like art, just these movies that are that are all time classics, and they kind of like. They hold up for a reason because we can we get to look at it in, in retrospect of like what was good and what good movies are because the bad movies we forget about. What are like your top three? Like, what are your top three old movies? Yeah. Um. So w- when I came up with my list, I wasn't really considering the Disney Renaissance films because those are all like '90s movies. Um. Which we I kinda, guess we grew up with those, and so we're not like we're. Yeah, like like I'm not. I mean, you're you're a 2000 kid, and I'm a 2001 kid. So like those those were all movies that were in like in rotation, you know, when I was growing up. I like I don't really consider 90s movies very old. So I guess I mean now they're 30 years old, by the way. But I know, which is is weird. But you is right. Uh, So (laughs) I wasn't really considering those. Like, like the Disney Renaissance would probably make up my top three. It would probably be three Renaissance films if I if I am being honest. But um, the three that I came up with were uh, number three: Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I love Willy Wonka. That movie is just something else. It's terrified me as a kid, but now I really like it. Uh, number two, Indiana Jones, and I like in parentheses I have Last Crusade because that's my favorite of the original trilogy. But like I, I I'm kind of grouping Indi- all, all three of those together <laughs> as just like I, I like those are three really really good old movies. And then number one is Back to the Future. 
I love Back to the Future. I know that that's 1985, and that's not like super duper old, but uh, it's it's an 80s film. Like I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna put it in there. You know? Yeah. Three three great movies. Um, I'm pretty sure uh, the actual title. I'm gonna I'm actually a little bit. Uh, it's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I think. Oh, I did put down Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Because I think Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is the Johnny Depp version. Because oh. I think the book is Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah, the, 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 the old one. The, the one with, uh, who is it? Mel Gibson? Is Gene, that the guy? Gene Wilder. Gene Wilder. Same person. Uh, no. Gene Wilder <laughs> was in Brave or. or Mel Gibson was in Braveheart. I yeah, I, I didn't have the name on the top of my head. I knew who I was talking about. Okay, just our audience. Imagine for a moment, Mel Gibson, the the person in Braveheart. Imagine him in a purple top hat, like real quick. He could pull it like, off. That's he could. He could. He could totally do but, that. Now I want to see it. I do too. <laughs> anyway, uh, what? Give me, give me your top three. My top three is. I'm going to go number three, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Number two, uh, Goodwill Hunting. And number one, The Breakfast Club. Okay. I think Ferris Bueller's Day Off, is, it's, it's fun. It's funny. It's nostalgic. I mean, that's a really it's, solid movie, man. Yeah. Um, Goodwill Hunting, I can't remember how many times I've watched that movie, and, I can't, and I've cried every single time. I think I've only seen I've that movie it. one time, to be honest. It's so good. It's, it's it was so a very good, good movie, but... but I just like I don't know. I didn't I didn't care to watch it again. Like I saw it once and I was like, okay, that was really good. I guess maybe I should watch it again. I haven't seen it for a couple of years. It's 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 so good. And then like The Breakfast Club, it's that that I should probably, probably be on my list to be honest. I love I The Breakfast Club. I could probably recite the entire script. I know of you that could. Movie. I sw- I swear like, every time it, I'm at your house, Breakfast Club is on. Yeah, it's just like what gets put on in the background every time I'm over. We're playing poker and it's just Breakfast Club. Yeah, and it gets thrown on because it's the Breakfast Club, and like my my entire family knows that movie front to back. Very very solid. Fun fun little movie trivia though about uh, Ferris Day Off and the Breakfast Club. The high school that is in both of those movies is the same high school. Interesting. Yeah, it's filmed in the same high school. Interesting. They change na- they, the high school changes names. Yeah, it's not the same. It's not the same yeah, name yeah. in both movies. Yeah, yeah, but it's filmed in the same part of Chicago, the same high school in Chicago. Interesting. There you go. Exelon's yeah. fun fact about movies for the day. Yeah, they learn something. <laughs> At least they learn something from this podcast, you know. <laughs> Speaking of learning things um big companies don't seem to learn jack shit and from its player bases um and one of the things that i that we both do is we play a lot of magic the gathering um specifically wizards of the coast and like how they like manage the secondary market and how they're managing their finances and pumping out like new product all the time and whale hunting do you think that big companies should like worry about the secondary market or do you think that they should be more concerned with design of new product or design of new like of new sets and new material? Okay, so 
here's the thing. I'm fairly confident that I know your stance on this. So I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate here and say that especially, and again, it's a little bit different depending on what you're talking about, right? Like video games are a little bit different, but as far as like trading card games go, right? If we're talking specifically Magic the Gathering, uh, I, I actually do quite like that Wizards of the Coast is willing to reprint old cards. I like that they are actually paying attention to the secondary market. And the reasoning is that it makes it easier for new players to get into the game when a solid deck doesn't cost $2,500, right? If you can get a solid deck for, even even if you can get like a main board, right, for a couple hundred bucks, right? That's a lot more easy to swallow than uh, if they just never reprinted everything and stuff only went up in cost. It would make it very difficult to get brand new players into the game. I agree to an extent, but it depends on how you do it. Because okay, the way yeah, the yeah. Wizards of the, uh, of the Coast has been doing it really hasn't helped the secondary market in the sense that the way that they've made their product is that they've done like their regular sets and their collector boosters. And the thing with collector boosters is that it decreases the price of collector's items but not the regular like base. It's it's a different so explain yeah, it, collector's boosters for the audience please. So a collector's booster is something that so Magic the Gathering releases a set of totally new cards and new mechanics. And those are normal Magic the Gathering cards that you'll just see. And then they have collector's boosters that are stylized foil full art versions of cards that are still the same thing. Like, there's still magic cards that you can play with in tournament, but instead of a pack being 5 to $10, these are $35, $40 dollar packs. The one ring, like the one of one one ring, was in a collector booster. And all of these cards are really, really shiny, and they look really, really cool, but they're really, really expensive. And the problem with Wizards of the Coast, like, monitoring the secondary market and reprinting all this kind of stuff, is the fact that they're not really doing it the right way. They're doing it to where they're well hunting the people that can afford the brand new shiny thing. And they're not, like, printing basically an affordable version for the card. Because either people are going to buy the collector boosters or they're going to buy a regular version of the pack. So it just... It narrows the prices between having an exclusive collector's version of a card and the regular version of the card. And it only marginally decreases how much, like, the actual, like, an expensive card would be. If so, like, if a card's, like, $10, now the collector version is going to be 12 As, like, contrary to before, the the card would be, like, the collector version of the card would be double the price. It would be 20. Yeah. So, so your, what your $10 point is, is that... Eight and the collector. So, so your point is that um, when Wizards of the Coast, especially if they're printing these collector's editions, right, the, the point is that they're not just reprinting these old expensive cards into, like, actual normal priced packs, right? That, that's kind of your point. Right, like they have ways of printing them. Like the, what they've done now is that they have what are called master sets. 
where they exclusively reprint um, old cards, and there aren't any new cards that are reprinted. That's the way that you need to do it. Well, masters, master sets, in my opinion, like they, I think they're absolutely great for the game, but they're only like once a year and for specific formats. And even still, they're doing the collector thing, like they're doing the collector booster thing, and so it doesn't drop it to really what I would consider affordable for, especially for most new players. Well, so that was going to be my point: is that modern masters, as as you were talking about with uh, like the collectors packs, right? Modern masters packs are not the same price as a normal MTG booster pack, correct? Correct. So when you print these old expensive cards and you do reprint them into a new pa- in, into a new set, but the packs are so expensive, it really doesn't decrease the value of the cards, right? Because you still have to spend so much more money to get these cards that therefore their actual market price as like singles is going to pretty much stay the same, right? It kind of depends on the demand of the card, uh to be completely honest. Like I remember when this was in, years and years ago, there was a card called Tarmogoyf. And Tarmogoyf was an incredibly well-played, like, like incredibly highly-played card throughout Magic. And <clears throat> the card was consistently around $70, depending on the version. And when it got reprinted into Modern Masters, people were like, oh my gosh, Tarmogoyf is going to be affordable. And it dropped from $70 to... $65. And it's because the demand for the card was just so high that it didn't matter how many that you opened. But the EV of the packs was still really, really high. Like, the expected value of each pack was still really, really high, especially when you have one thing that Wizard, I will praise uh, Wizard the, Wizards of the Coast for doing is downshifting cards and rarity from... That was going to be my next point. Like, mythic rare to rare that helps tank the price of a card a lot because you'll have like like cards that used to be incredibly rare or not incredibly rare but just like rare finds in a pack to like literally i think it's a one in 13 that you get a mythic rare to a guarantee or something like I, i don't know the exact numbers but it's dramatically like um more common to find these like to find a rare than it is a mythic rare like it's just the pool is greater if you look at a card like monastery swiss beer which was an uncommon for a very long time monastery swiss beer was it was creeping up at like two dollars a copy when it was printed in an uncommon because it had a really really high in a 15 uh 15 card booster pack there were three uncommons. Uh, Monastery Swift Monastery Swift Spear um, got creeped up to like two dollars a copy, and now it's fifty cents a copy because it got downshifted to Comet in one of the sets. And so there's just tons out there now. Well, and that was going to be my point: is that these modern Masters packs have a larger effect on uh, expensive cards of lower rarities, right? Like I remember when. I think it was Modern Masters 2 came out. They reprinted Serum Visions, which was, uh, at the time, I, I want to say before that, before it 
they reprinted it. Serum Visions was like $5 or $7 or something like that, which is kind of an absurd price for, you know, uh, a cantrip, right? But they reprinted it at Common in Modern Masters and it dropped. And obviously, I think some other things helped with like meta and stuff like that, right? But now Serum Visions is a dollar or something like that. It's been reprinted a couple more times. But I mean, it cut the price of Serum Visions in half just by just by printing it again as a common. Yeah, and the, like, and there's always it will never be perfect. Like, Agreed. Like, you, like there will always be the lists of lands. the top ten cards. One, like, yeah, lands because they're just they're just in such high demand. Like fetch lands being not being like readily available. I really do think that like they should reprint fetch lands in like such an integral piece of playing not even competitive magic but like playing a not horrible like not kitchen table magic yeah like you have to have fetch lands at like at at this kind of at At this point in time i agree yeah yeah at this point in time if you're not playing mono red goblins you pretty much have to have fetch lands in your deck I think Shocklands yeah. are another convert, like another one in the conversation. Yeah, I think because right, right now though, it's it's pretty respect. I would say I'm going to use the term like respectable. Like the most expensive fetch land right now is twenty dollars, or I, I guess the Zendikar ones, the the, the other. Um, the other of the normal printings the most yeah. expensive yeah, yeah the normal printings that yeah the not normal printings are are they're creeping up zendikar expeditions like yeah those are something else yeah. we aren't we aren't talking about those right now yeah those ones are still i well i was talking about the the cons of tarkir reprint ones they got printed into modern um, oh those ones haven't received a reprinting in a long time yeah the flooded strand polluted the, delta yeah. The what are those? The allied colors? Uh, I think so. I'm. I don't know which ones allied. I believe are they are. The, I believe those are the allied fetch lands that were printed in Cons of Tarkir. Um, okay. But yes, those are <clears throat> incredibly expensive. Like I think that they are too expensive to be honest. In in a game I where agree. every deck has, uh, I, I'm gonna gonna use this term loosely, but every deck has one thing in common, which is that they run lands, right? Like lands are the pretty like pretty much the most expensive part of every deck, right? It's just I don't know. It's I I think me personally I think it's absurd. As a not like hyper competitive MTG player, I think that the fact that I can find a cool deck that has a main board that costs uh one hundred and fifty dollars and a land base that costs one hundred and fifty dollars, I just think that it's absurd. You know, that that's where yeah. I'm at. I I think that Wizards of the Coast needs to kind of reprioritize um, the print, like how they monitor the secondary market, because they said that they didn't, and then they kind of they they do. They publicly stated like we're not gonna we're not gonna monitor the secondary market because. There were just cards that were skyrocketing in price that were that people really protested and really didn't like 
they were getting that expensive, especially fetch lands. And they're like, we're going to focus on design. We're going to focus on new things. And I was like, use master sets, print, like print things at rare, print fetch lands at rare, reprint, like monitor the secondary market with your like ancillary product, like commander precons, print fetch lands into panic. Like every single commander precon should have a fe- like a fetch land in it, not multiple, just like a fetch land. But every single set should print fetch lands into it, and it will like it will temper how the demand for fetch lands, and it will it will make them affordable. So new players don't have to shell out for for a not like not mono red like not playing mono red burn like right now it's pretty consistent like a modern deck will run you about twelve hundred dollars a standard deck will run you about four hundred ish dollars probably well yeah probably goes closer to three hundred well and like half of that price is lands like that's that's the part and it's just like if they reprinted them into a normal set it would instantly uh i would say take 40 percent off of the price i totally agree Uh, with things like fetch lands it's a little difficult just because you have to think about standard and you have to think about um how it will affect the standard metagame in tournament and in like I do agree that printing stuff into standard is a little bit more of a undertaking, but at the same time, like I just yeah, I I think that they need to be a little bit more willing to do so. I do too. I think making the game cheaper for everybody will it makes things easier. It it makes people want to buy. Everybody has their twenty unfinished commander decks, but if cards were a lot less expensive, you would make more money because people are buying packs to finish their unfinished commander decks. And I think I when... think making things cheaper is always better for a player base, and it will always bring people in because. Well, and so that was going to be hell. you. You say it would bring people in. That was going to be my last question to you. Was if they made it cheaper, do you think more people would tend would attend events? I think so, because I've played in big, like really, really big tournaments before. I've played in Grand Prix. I've played in five Ks and one Ks, and there's always the new player or new ish player where it's going to be their first one K. And I really do think that that is like a such a critical time in a magic player's career to where, or I guess career might not be the right, but like, I know what you're saying. Yeah. Like where it's a really big tournament and it could be any format where they're going to go in and they built this deck or they have a deck and it's a budget deck or something like that. Like I've yeah. played against budget decks before in one case because there's YouTubers that are like, did this de- budget deck just break the metagame? And you're like, no, but you cherry picked a bunch of games that you played with it to say when it won yeah, yeah, yeah. five or whatever. But <clears throat> I think that having cheaper decks out there for young players to play and like go to these bigger events 
brings people in and it brings people into competitive magic, which I love. I would I, I really want there to be a bigger competitive scene. But right now, like the number one the number one deck is twelve hundred dollars. The number two deck is twelve hundred dollars. Number three deck is six hundred dollars. But none of those cards are that burn. Ver- it's Tron, and none of those cards are versatile at all. To like, you don't have those cards for any other deck that you could possibly play. Like, I played Magic for a really long time, and so I'm able to build a decent chunk of a lot of these decks just because I have the cards, and I just need to buy a key piece here or there. That's or a, a couple cards here or there, and I have the majority of the deck. Woohoo! I I get to do that. New players don't have that luxury. They have to kind of build into a deck or start winning 1Ks with budget decks, which just isn't going to happen because you have to buy four copies of the One Ring or Orcish Bowmaster, which are each $60 a piece. And it's just, it's just ridiculous. You've got to find ways to make magic cheaper. And I understand new cards have high demand and things like that, but the key building blocks of a format need to be inexpensive. Like they, they just need to, to not gatekeep an entire format or entire formats. Like Commander is a great example of this, of the, the biggest difference between a high-powered deck and a competitive deck is the mana base. It's fast mana, and it is, it's fetch lands, it is, and the expensive mana rocks, and all that stuff. That's all it is. And, like, quite literally, that is all, all, all it is. But, but there's a, it's, like, those expensive cards are $100 a piece. And it's just not realistic for new players, if they want to play in a more competitive environment or play certain decks to have to shell out, just a stupid amount of money to just play the game. Yeah. Or to play with certain people. Yeah. You, you need to make things cheaper. You just, you, you need to. And something like commander masters that's coming out. I love things like this, even though I don't play a lot of commander, it's great to have these things just to make magic cheaper. Agree. I, I strongly believe that I like, I think that it should be cut down. But uh, I guess that's up to Wizards of the Coast now, you know? I know, like, um, Pokemon actually does a really great job of keeping a lot of cards very inexpensive, or they're, at least their meta very inexpensive, because they print the hell out of the expensive cards to basically make it so only a few cards are really, really expensive, or only a few cards are... Um, and not even really, really expensive, like $30 a card. Well, and the thing and about Pokemon, too, is that I think Pokemon is much more, uh, like, open to the collector's side of things, right? So there are a lot of Pokemon cards that are collector's items that you see, like, absurd price tags on. But the thing about Pokemon is that, like, generally speaking, when you see those absurd price tags on, on those collector's cards, there is another version of that card very playable in tournaments for uh you know like dollars right instead of thousands you know 
Like there is yeah. another very, very uh, affordable form of that card that is not a collector's edition, and therefore it's not worth anything. Yeah, there, I, I don't know if you remember like the uh, the rainbow Pikachu that was getting yep. that was that the actual like tournament playable version of that card is I think a dollar. It's it's yeah, it's a collector's pitiful. item. Yeah, it's a collector's item, and I think Pokemon does that really, really well because they make their collectors part of their collectors' items are in actual like packs for people to chase, yeah. not a collector's pack, not a special like, expensive collector's pack. Yeah, that is there to make money, and that's it. Well, and MTG so, almost had that right for a couple sets when they were printing uh, things like. Zendikar expeditions and uh, the the relics in uh, Kaladesh and the whatever the things in Amonkhet were called, right? Like they they yeah. almost had that right, and then they just I don't know they kind of gave up on it. I would argue they did have it right because that was cool. That was fun. they were very I, cool cards. I mean, imagine I if that... they if they did that kind of thing where they were printing like old cards like that with like uh. Again, like, just, I'm trying to think, like, because the Zendikar Expeditions were obviously lands, primarily lands from that set, right? Obviously, they they printed, right. like, all of the all of the fetches and shocks, right? But, um, like, I'm trying to think exactly, like, what a good example would be. Like, printing, what if they printed, like, reserved list cards as, like, uh, treasures, right? That would be huge collector's items but would not really, like, affect anything else, you know, in normal packs. Yeah, I think that would be awesome. I think that's a great way to go about it where, like, legally, the reserve list is a whole other thing that I'll go on another hour-long rant on on how pissed off the reserve list makes me. <laughs> but that's a great example of how to, abs like, to make magic affordable is people... There's going to be people out there, the, the content creators, that are like, I bought 12 cases and we're going to find the, we're going to find a reserve list card. We're going to find a Black Lotus or something like that. Like, that's fun. That's, and that will 100% drive the value of a set down. And it did. And there's historical evidence to prove that it did. Because the number one deck in the, like, the number one decks going through that, historically, especially in modern, where the Eldrazi decks that were being built at the time were the entirety of the metagame. And the decks were cheap to make. The only expensive card was the old land that was, like, that spiked to, like, $70. It was, there was one card. But the rest of the, the the rest of the deck was affordable, and it's in part to how like for to people opening up a ton of this stuff to try and find the the collector community trying to find the expeditions. Exactly, I I just yeah I I think I think MTG could do more with that part mm -hmm. of it things like expeditions treasures that kind of thing and maybe less of these uh, glorified collectors things that kind of no one cares about, right? Yeah, and, like, when you get into, like, cards being so expensive, 
people start to proxy cards or homebrew cards, and that's kind of where you get into a gray area in homebrewing in general, whether it's magic or whether it's Dungeons and Dragons, always kind of raises some questions. So, as a dungeon master, do you have you ever had like characters try and homebrew something or so? Like, actually, in my case, uh, it tends to be me homebrewing things. I have uh, a very, very active imagination, which leads me to come up with things that aren't in D and D yet, but that I think would be very, very cool in D and D. So, like, most of my boss encounters are completely homebrewed. Most of my monster encounters, I'll take a monster and then homebrew a stat block for it, slash new abilities, right? Like, that's just that's just what I like to do. So, what I also tend to do is most of the items given to my, uh, to my players are homebrewed. That's just kind of how I do it. I really, really like the idea of homebrewed items. Um, obviously, there are some things from the, from the books that just are really good. Like they're just designed properly. Uh, they fit the they you know maybe they fit the 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 pace of the campaign, the place right that kind of thing, and and they work just fine. So don't get me wrong, using stuff from the books is completely fine. Um, I do have players come to me and say, "Hey, I want a character who can do these two things," you know, and I'm like, "I can work with that. I I think I can work with that. I I got you. I'm gonna I'm gonna figure out something here, right? We can make that work. Whether it's uh a multi-class or um you can play this class but you can like let's see what happens if i adjust the spell list on you know this uh domain from cleric and then let you take that domain right like that's something that i had i had a warlock who wanted to play he, he wanted to be a warlock but he wanted to play the war domain of cleric like those were the two things he wanted to do but he's like I just, he's like, I don't know what I can do because these two things, they don't multi-class very well, right? One's obviously a wisdom caster, one's a charisma caster. And I was like, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to customize this uh, spell list from the war domain, and I'm going to give you access to uh, what's Cleric's thing called? Uh, divine something. They don't have smite. What do they? Divine. Divine. Uh, trying to think they get something from their domain uh at level two they start to be able to use it i can't think of the actual keyword i know right what now. you're talking about yeah yeah I, I can't think of the keyword right now uh something like turn undead is one of them right yeah uh, i can't i can't think of the actual keyword but yes i was like i'm gonna give you access to this and i took away his warlock access to i essentially made the him being able to use maybe it is called divine intervention uh, him being able to use that was in place of him being able to use the normal warlock, uh, the patron ability, like that. The essentially the war domain became his patron is, is kind of how I treated it because he really wanted to mm -hmm. to mix these two things, and I was like, I think I can make that happen, and it worked. It actually worked out pretty well. Like it was a it was a cool character. Uh, he was basically like this evil guy who had gotten who would run into the war god essentially and the war god was like yeah i'm not like we're not doing this anymore and he basically branded him and made him into this war cleric 
even though he and and in doing so he essentially became this guy's patron therefore a warlock right he's not quite a cleric he's not doing it because he wants to per se but he he's yeah. he's patroned to do so you know it ended up being a pretty cool character that is a really cool character see i wish um a lot of my players in the past this has just kind of been a thing that has happened to me in dungeons and dragons as i as i've dm'd is that players kind of feel like if it's on the internet uh they can play it um i have that yeah of i've had a particular few players who find races or classes that are like oh i really want to play this this is so cool like I want to do that. And you look at the stats and it's like, this character like, gets plus what? two to everything and can fly and can swim and has dark vision and like gets your mom's phone number. They just literally all do it stuff. all. And you're just like, what? Like, yeah. And it's like, what's the downside of this character? Like I, what is the, like this how character's is this literally good at everything? Unbelievably... Yeah. There was this one specific like blend of a warlock and a monk. That was an official like D and D released thing, and its downside was every time it would use like an ability, um, it had the key points, but every time it would use one, it would take damage, or it would take a specific type of damage. And okay. It was a, I think it was force damage, and there's way there's so many different ways to prevent that kind of damage or minimize, like, force damage to gain a resistance to it that are just naturally built into the regular handbook To that I was like, I, you can't play this. And he's like, but it's so cool. I'm like, you can play a monk that has dark magic. We can workshop, like, let's workshop something to where it's fair. But straight up just having a care, like, having people pull something off of the internet like talk to your yeah. dungeon master first. Please talk, talk to, to your DM. Yeah, because with like newer with newer players, and I always say like just hand them the the regular player's handbook and say pick from these six or however many there are, and then with more experienced players, I always say pick from whatever book you found. And we'll go over it and find something that's good for your character because a lot of the the extended like the um pieces of media that Wizards of the Coast releases for Dungeons and Dragons isn't as well designed. It's pushing the envelope a little bit. There is power creep. There is certain things that make characters better or worse or more a, a lot of the time it's more linear in design so there's like there's a grappler that's really that's released it's really good at grappling people and one of the things that you can do with this grappler is that you can be a halfling and grapple a giant successfully like pretty easily and it's something that i've talked about with my characters before of like it can't fly and i had a specific who their their character died because they didn't have any combat spells. I've talked about this this specific yeah, yeah, player yeah. multiple times on the podcast. 
they didn't have any combat spells. They died. And they're like, okay, I'm gonna... They designed a character, and their very first session back, I'm like, okay, did you make a character? Like, did you make a new one? Um, they're like, yeah. And I'm like, show it to me. And they sent me a PDF, and the the race of the character was blank. And this was, like, the first red flag, and I texted them about it, like, a few times before thing, like, hey, what race is your character? Like, it doesn't matter. It probably won't matter an insane amount, but if it's, like, a, if it's a dragonborn or, like, or a half-orc or something yeah. like that, like, th- it, it matters a little bit. Turns out it's this race that I've never heard of that was pulled off the internet that was just a human with wings. <laughs> like, that's really all it was. Got the same human bonuses of, like, you could pick one to, like, get a plus one in certain just also has a fly speed categories, but also you could fly. Yeah, just also had a fly speed. I'm like, there's no downside to this. Like, what did you lose to gain yeah, a fly like, speed? Yeah, like that's and that's one thing that's kind of humans do th- a lot of things really well. There's kind of a joke in Dungeons and Dragons of like, oh yeah, if you don't know what you want, just play a human and you can do something and you'll be good at it. That's because humans are the most flexible class but if you have another tailored race like being smaller yeah like be like dwarfs and clerics match up really well together you get race class bonuses just being able to fly i'm like this is so dumb this uh, and i and i talked to them about this and i said hey like you can't just play this character and they're like well it was on the internet like it was and a lot of people thought that it was just, it was fine that they could just fly. I'm like, I'm not fine with it. Yeah. No, no, like, no. I'm your DM, and I'm not okay with it. Yeah, and I'm not okay That's with it. That's all there is but to I, it. But they, but they wanted something, But and we ended up talking about it after they had their little pity party um, about not being able to fly. I'm like, okay, what do you want your character to do? Like, do you want this character to be a human with wings? And or like an archangel or somebody that's like that is this race like can we fix it somewhere like let's fix this fix your stats so the care i think the players were like level eight or nine at the time and this particular race of character was doing things like a level 13 should be able to do because they're a fighter and they're flying around and they're using Um, abilities so they're like I'm gonna fly up kick this one person or stab this one person with a spear and push them back and then fly over here because I have this fly speed I'm like okay let's bring it back a little bit calm down a little bit calm down a little bit let's make something cool that you want that is also fair to you and the rest of the players so I don't know if you've ever had this scenario of you have like min maxers and people who are just trying to have fun in the same group at the same table yep at the same table because the people who min max for combat scenarios are like they're they kind of embarrass the the people who are just trying to have fun it just unbalances the the table yeah because you'll have somebody who who will deal 50 something damage in a turn at level five because like i've done this before with a fighter barbarian multi-class that i had that i asked the dm and i'm like i it was for a one shot and i was 
like, I really want to do a min-max fighter, something like that. Just, just, I'm like, just have fun with it. And the DM said, yeah, sure, go for it. This is one shot. Like, go for it. And I hadn't played in a really long time. Like, sweet. Like, I'm going to... I'm going to get to get to have some fun here. And then everybody else in the one shot was like, oh, this is a character that I've really wanted to try out, but I don't know how they're going to like look on paper. And I was schooling people and they had really, everybody else had really clunky setups or wasn't a fully developed character into what they were kind of supposed to be. Um, as a character, they were like wizards that didn't have a lot of spell slots yeah. or sorcerers that still had like incredibly low hp and utility and just things like that and then you have a fighter that's just stabbing everything within five feet of it and has two combats and does all the stuff it it embarrasses the other players and when you have something like a race or class or something that's homebrewed that's unbalanced it's really uncomfortable but it can make it tough to like the just the table doesn't quite function normally you know yeah, it, it throws it off really, the table. Yeah, it throws off the table, the pacing, everything. But on the flip side, when you have those homebrews that like you've killed it, or and you have worked with the player of like what you want that character to do, or what they wanted their character to do, and you can see them like this is exactly what I wanted my character oh, yeah. to do. It's such a dream. You're like, yes, like I did it. And the same thing goes for, like, DMs of, I don't have a monster manual. I have an online PDF of okay. the monster manual, but I barely look at it because I'm just like, I'm just going to homebrew it. I'm going to see something. Like, if I, I'm going to figure it out, and if I really need ideas of something, I can go from there. But I homebrew 99% of my combats. I feel like if you're taking... At least the way that I play, if you're taking things from the monster manual, like your final boss, like if your final boss is like Orcus or um, like Minsk and Boo are in your campaign, like those are really iconic characters. Branch out a little bit, take off the training wheels is is what I'll always say. Okay, I my my advice. Would be similar, but uh, I would say if... No, not necessarily (laughs) that's harsh. I would say more productive. What I would say is if you want something like Orcus or a giant or an ancient red dragon or, you know, something like that to be this final boss of your campaign, my strong advice would be take it. Maybe maybe even keep the stat block, right? Give it some new abilities. That's I think that's the number one thing you can do. If you want your giant red dragon, or, or your your sorry, your ancient red dragon to be the final boss of your campaign, maybe this is an ancient red dragon who, uh, because he's so ancient, he has you know many. He's obviously got a giant horde. Maybe he has many magic items in the horde, and maybe some of these magic items he's swallowed and gained the effects of. You know, maybe he swallowed a blade of ice, and now he can actually breathe ice as well as fire. And be able to freeze your freeze your players, right? Something like that, right? Give him just give it something new, and don't just pull it out of the book, right? That would be my I, advice. Yeah, I completely agree. 
Um, it's kind of funny that you mentioned the ancient red dragon because I've done that before, and the the dragon was so old that it learned how to be a spellcaster, and it could cast <laughs> spell. It, it could cast a, a, a albeit small list of spells, and it had spell slots and everything. But it could be it was a spellcaster, and my party's reaction to oh shit, this is not like a regular red dragon. We have to now kind of change the plan of attack yeah we got to worry about magic now yeah we got to worry about magic now is was way different and i've done like if you ever have somebody like orcus in your campaign like make a giant demon that does similar things and make yeah like you said maybe keep the stat block even if you want to call it orcus just give it some new abilities like make it refreshing Make it so that if your player were to open the monster manual and flip to that page, they still wouldn't know exactly what's coming, right? That that is my advice. Yeah, and I like I have friends in playgroups who have played uh, Dungeons and Dragons since third edition. They know the monster manual like front to back. They know um, a lot of D anD. d So if I ever like bring up a new monster or if i ever show them something that's from the monster manual a lot of the time they know pretty roughly what the stats are and how much health it has and what it does so it's harder to surprise them but even still like make make new stuff yeah strongly but strongly i i push you to flex your creative muscles and make something cool. And make mistakes doing it. Like, I know a lot of people... 100%. ...really could be kind of scared, especially new DMs. They get kind of scared home-brewing new things because they're like, what if it's not strong enough? But what if it's too strong? What if it... What if this? What if that? Make mistakes. Make mistakes. L- learn how to, like, do thorns and roses at the end of your campaign if you don't know what thorns and roses is it's a i i recently learned the term for it yeah um, i mean i've heard it I've by 10 different terms you know yeah but it's it's what did i do well what did i not do well in that campaign and sometimes some of the thorns is i was really i thought this one chance encounter was way too hard or i thought that this one uh chance encounter was way too easy or i think that this magic homebrewed magic item is really underwhelming or i think that this is absolutely busted like whatever it is yeah for sure no i I think that's a really good a really good way to look at it i think the other thing that uh, a lot of especially newer dms don't recognize right away is the fact that if you make something and you're like yeah this this enemy he's going to uh, you know, when when he dies, he has acidic blood. So whenever someone hits it, 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 it sprays acid on them and they take damage. And then when it dies, it explodes and it rains acid everywhere, right? If that's what you have written down and you get to the end of combat and your whole party is 5 HP, guess what? It doesn't have to explode. You can adjust things mid-combat, you know? If, you're, if your party ends up rolling really badly or... Uh, one of the players can't make it for the session and their character is not there, right? If something like this happens that's uh, something that's a little bit out of your control, you can control your side of it 
by adjusting the encounter, right? It's, it's improvisation, and it's something that you will get better at the more you do it. But you, you can adjust things mid-encounter. Maybe you wanted this enemy to explode, but you don't want to actually just kill every party member. So <laughs> now you're going to be like, oh, well, it doesn't explode. But what it does do is uh, it's acid blood uh, steams in a puddle around it and... As it, you know, as this enemy dies and continues bleeding, its acid blood starts, you know, moving out along the thing. So maybe if there's a downed character right next to it, now the party has to rush to drag that guy out of the way, you know, like that kind of thing. You can still make things exciting without just killing your party because that's what you have written down for it to do, right? You, you can change things as you wish. You are the dungeon master. Yeah, exactly. Use your omnipotence. Use, like, to create a fun story and create a workflow or or, uh, like a flow of the table and how things are going to go. I can't. I have manually adjusted a combat being like, Oh, this was way harder than I wanted it to be. Or Or my players are rolling really badly. Right. Yeah. Or I had a second phase plan for this boss and they're only on phase one and they're all at like a third health or something like that that use it to your advantage use your omnipotent omnipotence to your advantage because at the end of the day like if your party gets really really close to dying you kind of know the limits of the party now you're like oh okay like that was too hard all right that was too hard okay like they almost died at this point so i could make things about this hard and go from there i did have one boss fight where i wanted it to have a phase two and my party was getting absolutely owned by phase one and uh (laughs) i i had the the enemy he basically they killed him and my whole party was like very low like some people had already been down that kind of thing so i'm like all right there's no there's not gonna be a phase two but i don't want this this guy to die right now so basically he like he, I, I don't know how better to describe it. He he kind of pulled a Voldemort and like turned into a shadow and he basically <laughs> thanked the party for freeing him of his mortal bonds and then left. So now the party is terrified that this dude like they just and like like they just made him stronger by essentially by mm-hmm. killing him and now they have to uh deal with that later, right? So like there's still like if you 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 have a lot that you can do as a DM. There's a you have so much power in what you can do as a dm like i i strongly encourage people to flex their muscles a little bit yeah go go nuts to butts have fun do do all the things like all the things that you think about like i kept a journal for the longest time when i was like really consistently playing in multiple play groups and i just kept a journal and always write down like cool thing fun things that i thought of like oh this was really this is a great idea or this is this is something fun to try and 90 percent of the stuff didn't land as perfectly as i wanted them to but i learned from every single one exactly and learned i'm like okay this is how i can conjure something from a table and players feed off of that and like players will feed off of creative unique ways that you have like come up like with things that you've homebrewed and and likewise kind of to get back to the original topic of like character design dms love it when you create new things or you want to flex your creative muscles because it gives us things to play off of like that we haven't seen before or a unique thing that we haven't seen before but 
Just make sure you talk to your DM beforehand. Please. So you don't screw up the entire table. Agreed. And with that, I do think that's a pretty good place to leave us off for this week. I agree. Um, so we will be back next week with another episode of the Nerd Hub podcast. Uh, hopefully you guys are enjoying it. If there's anything that you want to see us talk about, uh, I think you can respond on Spotify like to the podcast with like a what do you think. You can write it in there or you can always just at me on Twitter at Pinzo Dunzo. Uh, send me a tweet. Let me know what you want, would like to hear us talk about. But uh, I think that's all we've got for you this week. So we will be back next week with more. Thank you guys for listening. And as always, have a good one. We need to work on outros. I don't, I don't just don't have an outro down. I I really got to, I'll I'll pin one down for next week. I'll get on one. Right. All right. Yeah. Well, we're out of here. So we will see you guys back here next week. Bye, everyone.